Hi, listeners. This is Sarah back with another bonus episode of Cruising. Today, we have our full interview with Lisa Canastrossi, the owner of Henrietta Hudson in New York City. To refresh your memory a little bit, Henrietta's is located in a space that used to be another lesbian bar called Cubbyhole, which is completely unrelated to the Cubbyhole that we already covered and that is still open and running in Manhattan. Lisa and I sat down to talk in the lounge of Henrietta Hudson, in the side room by the second bar, or what is now known as the charcuterie station. Enjoy! Oh, hey. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Lisa Canastrasi. My pronouns are she, they. And I own Henrietta Hudson. Okay, so I'm going to start at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll, we'll just move through your life a bit. Where, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Park Slope. Oh, really? So you never really moved that far? Never. No, why, why would I? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I live on Morton Street. Um which looks very much like where I grew up in Park Slope, you know? So when you're not in the city, what are you doing? Sure. Um, well, I go to I go to out west a lot. My best friend lives in um, L.A. and Palm Springs, my best friend Justin. And so I go, I pop over there. Every, like, we try to see each other, like, every 10 to 12 weeks, so we either toggle. So I travel a lot. I have a house up in near Woodstock, so I'm not really here that much in the summer. And... Um, or ever, really. But um, I go there a lot. It's gorgeous. I like being in nature. Just relaxing. So when you're not here, there's... I'm, a, I'm in the mountains. You're relaxing. Yeah. Well, um, no, I work remotely. Oh, okay. I work with my team, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't just... I never don't work. So I know that you, you sort of started out bartending on Wall Street, correct? Sure, yes. I started in the bar business on Wall Street in the early 1980s, very early 80s. And, um, yeah, sure, it was the Wolf of Wall Street days. Uh, the movie was not exaggerated at all. I hung out with those guys. I partied with them heavily, heavy, heavy duty. I was the token lesbian and did not care because it was a ride. It was a wild ride. And uh, the money was obscene that, you know, they would throw at you being behind the bar. When I first got there, I was afraid to come out because I thought, wow, this is, you know, not a great place to come out. And... Uh, then I realized the guys were kind of hitting on me and the women were getting annoyed. And so I was like, you know, let me just come out. It'll diffuse all that. Well, no, it, they were like, Ooh, <laughs> you know, like it, it exacerbated it. And then the women would start hitting on me and whatever the case might be, it was uh, in a really interesting place to be uh, during like the Michael milk and junk bond days where literally it was the eighties, ex- the decade of excess and money was like, Thrown away, thrown around like water. <clears throat> Are you me. able to be a little more specific about what kind of pushed you to try to leave the bar on Wall Street? Well, sure, I can cut to the chase. I'm sober today, so yeah, I, I, yeah, it was just too much for me, and it was not. I didn't want. I wanted to get away from that lifestyle and um, have a better life. So yeah, so I, I literally don't. I'm the bar owner who doesn't drink. Yeah. You know, I've actually met a couple because we've been talking yeah. about a lot of, a lot of, a lot of bar owners that have longevity are pretty, are either sober or have no interest in drinking. I, um, even in my heyday, like, you know, I was 28 when I find, signed the first lease for Henrietta's. I was, you know, I had a blast, but, um, rarely did I get 
cuckoo bananas in, in the space. You know, I would go to my friend's bars or house parties or something like that. Yeah. So and, I always kept it separate. And now is it ever like a struggle for you to, to stay separate being around alcohol all the time? No, not at all. I mean, it doesn't even, I don't even see it. I don't see, I can, I don't even smell it. It's weird. <clears throat> it's just, it doesn't even, it, it's incidental. So the partying and stuff was just like what you see. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was crazy. I literally left that job to get away from that and uh, rolled on up to the West Village. And back then, before the internet, we had to pick up a newspaper to find a job. So we, I always got the Village Voice and it came out on a, at midnight every Tuesday. I saw a couple of uh, job openings. One was, uh, I believe it was at 519 Hudson Street, which is like five blocks north of, of Henrietta Hudson, which Henrietta's was formerly the cubbyhole from 1980 to 1990, half the size, half the space. So anyway, I went to the job interview. I was definitely qualified. I was 22. I looked super young when I was 22. And the owner said, I can't hire you. You just look too young. It was a very upscale white tablecloth restaurant and uh, I was feeling really defeated and kind of just trudging down Hudson Street to uh, make the left on Morton to go to the F train. I lived in Brooklyn and literally, I'm not kidding, like the sky opened up and it was sort of pouring and I ran into this bar to get out of the rain and that's Henrietta's. Um, I basically was hired on the spot at the cubby hall, kept my job on Wall Street till I had enough shifts here, shifted over worked here for five five years, yeah, 85 to 90, and then came back in 91 and reopened it as Henrietta's. So I've been here 36 years, minus a year. What was the old cubbyhole like when you were I was fantastic. It was great. It was, you know, it was definitely um, a, uh, a product of the times. So it was the West Village. It was the 1980s. The AIDS epidemic ravaged New York City. Activism was was a was a thing, a big thing, because essentially the, the U.S. government wouldn't uh, even say the word AIDS or HIV, you know. And so we had to take to the streets and we were radical and, you know, we I was a part of ACT UP and we stormed St. Patrick's Cathedral on a Sunday and we took over Grand Central Station and, you know, so the West Village was a real activist community. It was very rough and rugged. It was edgy. Um, meatpacking district, we owned it, you know, like we had all our nightclubs there, our underground nightclubs. And it was, it was, uh, it was radical and it was, uh, it was excessive and it was, uh, it was a time that you can never, ever redo. I mean, it was, I don't know. It was, it was like, I guess like a real queer, queer culture embedded in the West village that, Nobody even came to hang out. No, nope. it was essentially queer. So we owned it and people didn't come and try to hang out in the West Village, you know, until meatpacking pivoted 15 or 20 years ago, I don't remember. And, uh, and Sex in the City came. <laughs> and then that's when everything changed, you know. How did you end up joining ACTA? My friends were dying, you know. I mean, they would get diagnosed and be dead in 10 days. That's how quickly they died. Um, the les my friends, my friends who were lesbians and the gay women in the city, um, we went to St. Vincent's Hospital to take care of our guy friends because the guys were terrified to go in. They didn't know how it was transmitted back then. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I was just did it because 
it was personal to me. Oh, so the thought was that you were less likely to get it? Yeah, because women were not getting it. It was gay men, period. So nobody knew how it was transmitted. If it was saliva, if it was, you know, through the air or no, it, it was, there was no research until Dr. Fauci came and he's the one who really pushed and, and well, we pushed him. What else uh, were you involved in as part of ACT UP? What did that look like? Were, were there meetings? What's like the inside world? Sure. I mean, they were just meetings in random rooms you know, where people would come and talk about their experience and about the people they lost and what can we do. And, you know, we had to be really aggressive and uh, radical because there was no other way for this. Um, nobody cared. Nobody cared. It was it was drug addicts and, and gay men, you know, like, so it was, uh, it was just a coming together of the community uh, that, and it's when, when COVID descended upon the United States and New York in particular, because we were slammed, um, I had, we, me, myself, and other activists from the 80s who survived, men and women, um, were just like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, like, we, you know, this is okay. We can handle it. Because guess what? Everybody's talking about it. So that COVID had a way of a leg up, had a leg up on, on HIV AIDS. You know, and then there was the experimental drugs and AZT, and people were getting sick from that. And uh, I know some, I know some people who just wouldn't take AZT. They were down to like no T cells, and they they made it somehow. They made it back. You know, it's uh, that's a whole podcast. I mean, like you want to talk about it? You know, that's another I talk know. show. Well, when you said you stormed St. Patrick's, oh yeah, so during Sunday like, service. So what what was it like? I mean, you know, the service was going on. We opened the front doors and we walked right through, you know, and we stood there and then we had some stuff to say. Certain people had stuff to say and it was, we, we, we were disruptors. So all during that time you were working? I was bartending, going to college. I was studying um, undergraduate uh, psychology. I was going to go to, for my master's in clinical psychology and opening the bar was a complete fluke. It was not in the cards. It was not in my, it was not ruminating in my brain. I never wanted to own a bar. It never crossed my mind. I loved bartending. I took the money. I went home. Um, and what happened was Cubbyhole closed, original Cubbyhole, I have to say, because I absolutely love Lisa from Cubbyhole. She's fantastic. So I always try to keep that, you know, that respect. Um, so Cubbyhole closed. <clears throat> the owner went one block east and opened a place called Crazy Nannies. It was there for a long time. We all went with her. I didn't really like it. I didn't like the new vibe. So right across the street, there was a little place called Kelly's Village West. I went and worked for Kelly. And I didn't realize the power of, of a bartender's following because that didn't occur to me either. But when I went to Kelly's, everybody came and followed me. And I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. So then I started doing Sunday night parties there. And back then... You took people's names and put them on index cards, and that's how you that's how you developed your mailing list. And it was literally a mailing list, and you printed flyers. And the graphics were not fantastic back then, and you put them in an envelope with a stamp and mailed them to the person's house. I know it sounds crazy, and it was so much work because it was like everything was so heavy, right? The 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 the, the printed cards were heavy. The envelopes you got paper cuts. You had to pay hundreds of dollars in postage and you couldn't put a return address on it because a lot of people were in the closet. 
So it was like this, it was a time, you know what I mean? I loved bartending. I remember, I have an incredible memory for faces and uh, anything visual I can remember. Uh, my general manager yesterday said something like, where I said, oh, I have, okay, this is going to sound funny, but, you know, we have a charcuterie bar now with cheeses and stuff like that. So we do these cute little plates here and on, you know, hummus and stuff. Yeah, it's really good. So anyway, um, we were lacking a little bit of refrigeration. So I live above the bar. It's no secret. Above the main bar, I have a big apartment. And um, anyway, I, I bought a bar. I, I, go, I like to go to the warehouse to do all our buying. We still go to the warehouse and we load up big trucks and we bring it in. So I had all these cheeses in my refrigerator upstairs. And uh, and then and my, my manager said something like, you know, I think we have one. And, um, and I can remember an inventory sheet if I read it once or twice. I can remember all the numbers on it. And I said, no, no, I think we have nine. And she goes, no, no, no. I go, all right, well go take a look. And she's like, it's nine. You know? So I have that. And that's a good thing to have in this business. Like I would know how exactly how many bottles of vodka, everything just by reading it once or twice. Yeah, so if somebody calls me and says, we're out of something. I'm like, no, we have 16. Go look, go back. And you make people feel special. Like, Oh, the usual. Oh yeah, I remember. Oh, I remember. I remember where they went on their last vacation, who their partner was, maybe what their mother's name is. Um, it's just one of those things. I got, I love bartending. Anyway, that's what I did. And then my customers were, were bugging me to open the old cubby hole. And I said, oh, hell no, I, I don't want to do that. And then this woman, I met this woman, Minnie Rivera. She's still my business partner. 30 years later, we're very good friends now. And we've been. And she's about 17 or 18 years older than me and had a ton of experience in lesbian nightlife. In the 1970s, pre-Olivia Cruises, she had a lesbian, I wouldn't call it a travel company, but she had a, a, a she, she would lease out entire airplanes and take lesbians to like the Bahamas and stuff like that. Yeah, she's pretty great. She's pretty great. She's still around. And then she owned a couple of nightclubs, which were pretty infamous. Like she owned this place called Network on 16th and 6th. Madonna used to go there and Jelly Bean would DJ there. Um, she owned a place in Tribeca when Tribeca was desolate in the 80s called Garbo's, like a really nice nightclub. Then she had Pandora's Box and the grill, I don't know, a bunch of stuff. How did you meet her? I was a bartender. She walked in on one of my shifts and she was like, I guess she had a very good experience. And then she, she tried to find me and she found me and we sat down and had dinner. I don't know. The next thing I knew we were opening this place. I, I it just it was kind of in a whirlwind. Did you remember serving her? Or you just oh yeah, I do. I do. I'll tell you her experience. Cause she likes to tell the story. She came, I was at crazy nannies at that brief time I was there. She came in with her friend, Pam, they were on their way to the airport to pick up a friend. The friend was landing in a couple of hours. They popped in for a quick drink and uh they never made it to the airport i kept them there the whole time as as a bartender they she just had such a great time she just never left and uh and then she's pretty amazing she's pretty great yeah and then what was it like transitioning to the business side of <sighs> it was hard i mean i just did it like i i'm i was pretty fearless i i still don't i'm not big on fear it's not one of my things i don't it doesn't inhabit me and i don't really pay attention to it. I don't have a lot of fear. So I just did it. I just thought, well, let me just do it. It was a lot of work figuring it out as I went, you know, because I was the operations and she was, um, she was running other places. 
But, um, you know, it was the way I can describe it is, you know, I've been at this game so long that like if something happens, I can remedy it like that. I can say, imagine looking at like a piece of graph paper with a hundred boxes and something happens with, with plumbing or with anything. It could be social media. It could be an employee. Um, in the, when I first opened, I would have to maybe go through all these numbers and then go, oh, it's 62. That's the answer. Now I can just go with 62. I don't have to go through and, and try to figure it out, you know, and push and go through other steps to get to the answer. The answer is pretty much right in front of me. It better be after 30 years, you yeah. know? Yeah. <clears throat> so. So how would you describe the bar when you first opened? You know, we had to build it up a little bit. It didn't magically um, happen. Uh, I did bartend for the first couple of years at least to have some, some money, you know, some income. Uh, because I was we were paying off the renovations and stuff like that. Um, I mean, it was thrilling. It was thrilling. I mean, people did it, were engaging, and then they did. They were gracious, and you know, we we before we knew it, we were the hottest ticket in town. You know, there were, and the way that you know that is, back then, taxis lined up in front of your bar to to take people to pick people up because that's how busy you are. So you'd have a line of taxis in front of the bar, yellow taxis. That's when you know. That's when you know, yeah. yeah. And then I, I know you've kind of revamped a few times over the years. Sure. So what motivates that and what, how yeah. has the bar evolved? Sure. It's not, it's not methodical and it's not sought after. You know, when you're this, – this business to me has a heartbeat of its own. Like it's a live organism, Henrietta Hudson. It's, uh, it's got a, a soul. So I, it speaks to me. I know that might sound weird, but the space, the energy, the the vibe of the people, I always know when it's time to pivot because I, I, I'm just listening. I'm listening. I'm watching. I'm feeling. Um, I literally live on top of the bar. I talk to people. Um, I get inquiries. I get suggestions. I get compliments. I get, you know, so... It's generally, and, and it's not planned, it's not on a calendar, it's every seven years. It goes through some metamorphosis. And uh, we're on our, like, I think fifth or sixth iteration. I think it's the fifth. So two iterations ago, we became uh, a lesbian-centric queer human bar. Because I, everybody, first of all, I'm going to say this out loud, I have never identified as lesbian. It's not a secret. I never had the language to be clearer about, you know, how I saw myself, how I identified. <clears throat> but I always said I was gay. You know, I just, I, I really don't have a lot of lesbian friends. I don't hang out, I don't hang out in lesbian circles, not on purpose. It's just, you know, I kind of, I, I don't like trying to force anything in my life. I try to just be and what I'm attracted to, I'm attracted to. And I hang out a lot of my friends are gay men and uh, trans men and straight women and, you know, uh, so anyway, me, Lisa, who owns Henrietta Hudson, so I, I would say I'm a she, she, they, and, uh, I, I guess I, I don't really know. It doesn't, it's not really that important to me anymore, but I, I always felt gay, period. You know, I just had more of the characteristics of being gay. So, and intent, in that's how I feel. So, um, uh, I guess it was around 20, was it 2013, 2014. 
um, I saw the community changing and I was so happy. I saw these young queer kids, you know, um, become, becoming, just, just becoming. And I was very attracted to that. I thought, you know, this is great. These kids are like just so free and, and relaxed and confident. And, you know, I, re rec I realized too, they weren't coming here. So I spoke to them. I do a ton of activism. I mean, I go way back, not just, you know, I just never stopped from when I started. So um, I go to a lot of events and there was a bunch of queer kids at an event. I don't know what organization it was for, but I was like, hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, they didn't know who I was, which was good. And I said, uh, hey, would you guys ever go to Henrietta's? And they go, oh no, that place is so old. And I said, oh, okay. And I was like, thank you. That's all I needed to hear. So I started a whole brand refresh, a staff refresh, a vibe. Re it was it was not that doesn't it's not as easy as it sounds. It was everything was done in really small, like small adjustments, a lot of small adjustments, but not noticeable. And it fucking worked. It worked. I mean, I can't really give all my secrets away. I I just can't because I'm not going to. But I know exactly what I did, and I know exactly how I shifted things around, and it just the floodgates opened in a good way. And they, this young kid started coming in, and I was getting these trans masked groups, trans femme singer-songwriters, emails constantly. All these groups wanted to come in, queer skateboarding groups, um, 10, you know, tons of sports leagues, which we already had, but we, we expounded upon that. And um, so that was the last iteration. That was around 2014. Yeah. And then what? <sighs> noticeably changed about the bar, like, like I, as far as renovations? Oh, no, no. It was all, it was all vibe and, and, you know, how people were, were greeted and approached and the music, you know, stuff like that. Did you, you always have the dance floor? Oh, yeah. From day one. Okay. Yeah. So, um, that was when we, I changed, you know, I'm going to call it what I call it a tagline, right? To describe, you know, who we are. So we went from lesbian bar to lesbian centric, um, lesbian centric queer human bar. And then we were closed. We were the first to close when COVID hit. I closed before the mandate came down and we were the last to open. And I had, so I had 15 months to reflect on everything. And we came back as a queer human bar built by lesbians. And that's really how, how I feel that I feel like that's what we are. And, uh, you know, just to really embrace and rubber stamp the fact that we're all inclusive and that there's no gray area there. I don't want anybody to be confused. And we got a little pushback on Instagram because they were like, that's just not right because, you know, you're supposed to be take care of lesbians and, you know, people are entitled to their own, own opinion. But um, the thing they didn't realize was it's been that bar for the past 10 years. We just didn't, we just didn't put it in a tagline's been like that. There's been trans people among you. There's been queer people among you. There's been non-binary people among you. They're all, they've been here. They've been here. So shame on you for wanting to exclude them when you didn't even realize they were in the room the whole time. You know, so excuse my, no, you know, that's fine. It's, just, it's not right. Yeah. You know, it's bullshit. So how would you describe the bar right now if someone was like 
what's it like there? Like, why should I go there? Well, I always think of pe- that people make a space. I mean, it is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we cleaned it up. It's got like a nice mid-century modern living room vibe, which is relaxed. And what I wanted to do when, for the relaunch was offer an extra experience because Henrietta's was always notoriously that packed dance club, which is great. I mean, it's wonderful. That's what sustains us, right? But I think a lot of folks realized during COVID that they want that one-on-one intimate look in somebody's eyes and not be screaming and have a conversation, have a glass of wine, and maybe a little bite to eat. So what you can have at Henrietta's is whatever you want. You know, you can have a quiet... A lovely experience in the cabanas outside or on the sidewalk at one of our tables or, you know, lounge seating inside. Or you can go totally bananas and come in on the weekends and let it out. You know, you can you can make the experience whatever you want it to be. But you will be really feel very, very welcome. You know, we have a very young staff that a lot of them are new in the business, which is good. Well, not brand new, but not tons of, you know. And so... Most of them uh, took this job or inquired about this job because they wanted to be a part of this historic establishment. And they feel, you know, um, they feel lucky to be here. We feel lucky to have them. Cruising is reported and produced by Rachel Carp, Jen McGinnity, and me, Sarah Gabrielli, with music by Joey Freeman. Follow us along on our road trip and see pictures at our website, cruisingpod.com. Or follow us on social media at cruisingpod. That's C-R-U-I-S-I-N-G-P-O-D. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts.